Adventures in Sci-Fi Publishing, Episode 285, Interview with Mike Resnick. And now, constructed on a Zeppelin by an apprentice mage and delivered by a rocket ship to a benevolent dragon, Adventures in Sci-Fi Publishing. Welcome to Adventures in Sci-Fi Publishing, your podcast for science fiction and fantasy literature. This is Sean Farrell. Quick intro today. Today I'm joined by Mike Resnick, who discusses his book that was published in December by Pyre Books, The uh, Fortress in Orion. I was supposed to drop this episode in December, but yeah, that didn't happen. <laughs> it, didn't hap- it nearly didn't happen in January either, but at least it's here now. Also, at the end of this episode, we are going to play five or six minutes of the Bane audio drama Islands by Eric Flint. They have been our sponsor for the last few shows, and I thought it'd be fun to go ahead and and play a sample of that so everyone could check it out. There will be a link in the show notes on how you can purchase the audio drama if you'd like to, Um, and I think you'll hear it's a good, uh, good production, only costs a few bucks, so definitely worth checking out. Plenty of new uh, book reviews and articles on the website during the course of December and January. So if you haven't visited us there in a while, you may want to. There's something of value for you there. But let's go ahead and jump into this interview with Mike, and thanks for listening. Mike Resnick knows a thing or two about making a living as a writer and being quite prolific in the process. He is a five-time Hugo Award winner, a Nebula winner, a five-time Asimov's Reader's Poll winner, a Locust Reader Poll winner. You know, I could go on and on about the awards, but it would literally take like half an hour to do all that. So I'll just say go to his website and click on the awards page. It's pretty cool to look at. Um, in fact, in, as of 2013, Mike Resnick was listed by Locus as the most winning living award winner for short fiction and the fourth most award winning writer of all fiction categories. And he has a new book out, which we are going to discuss today. So Mike, welcome to the podcast. I'm glad to be here. Your newest novel, The Fortress in Orion, is set in your rather expansive future history, the Birthright Universe. And uh, you have a pretty funny afterward in the book where you talk about how you first came up with the idea for Birthright, gosh, I want to say back in 1977. And I was just wondering if you could start us off by telling us a little bit about this future history and how it started and how you decided to structure it in the different time periods the way you did. Okay, um, we're watching what I think to this day may be the most dreadful movie I've ever seen called Alice's Restaurant. Sorry if you're a fan. And uh, about halfway through the film, I'm muttering to myself, you know, why am I wasting my time here? I could be doing something really interesting, like going home and writing the future history of the human race. So my wife whispers to me, let's go do it. So that night, we walked out in the middle of the film, I went home, and I plotted out a history for for humanity from now until its extinction about 20,000 years from now. And uh, I wrote it up as a series of interconnected stories called Birthright, and I sold it uh, to Signet Books. And my editor there, uh, Sheila Gilbert, she's now over at DAW, uh, bought two books for me that day, uh, Birthright and another one. And she asked if I would mind making a couple little changes so the other one was in the future that Birthright had, had sketched because she thought it would make the readers feel warmer, cuddlier, or more comfortable or something. And uh, I said, sure. I made three, four little changes, and, and the book fit in there. 
And then uh, I sold her some more books, and, and on almost every one of them, she asked me, you know, put it in what we now call the birthright universe. So I did. And when I left there, uh, I went to tour, and uh, my editor at Big Tour, Beth Meacham, uh, just insisted that almost all the books I did for her, I think all but one, go into this birthright future. And when I sold some books to Ace and some to Warners and finally some to Lou Anders over at Pyre, uh, they all seem to want that. So now, uh, at, at the end of each book, I run a little timeline of all the stories I've put into this 18,000-year future, where they fit. And it's getting pretty complex. It's getting to the point where another 10 or 12 years, I'll even believe in it. <laughs> well, it sounds like the editors played a pretty strong role in filling the universe out. How many stories had you planned on setting in the Birthright universe if it was just up to you from the beginning? Obviously, well, the beginning, obviously there, it's up to you. There was you know just I mean. going to be that one book. Oh, At this okay. point, I believe there are 35 books and about 20 other short stories. Wow. And yeah. then, of course, there are a bunch that don't fit in there, uh, no matter how you you try and shoehorn them. And uh, I think there are about 25 or, or so books and a couple of hundred stories that don't fit in it. What is the uh, significance of birthright? What, what's that term from? Or what's the meaning, I should uh, say? It, it has perhaps an unpleasant view of man's nature in that uh, I, I, can't, I can paraphrase the opening, uh, which is that um, man uh, crawled up out of the ocean, developed lungs, grew legs, looked overhead, saw the stars, and knew they would someday be his, and that they would be his birthright. Mm. And uh, probably because I've spent a lot of time in Africa, and I've seen the very deleterious effects of colonialism, both on the colonized and on the colonizers, that I have a somewhat jaded view of what's going to happen when we reach the stars. But I think everybody, every thinking person would agree on two things. If we can reach the stars, we're going to colonize them. Mm -hmm. And if we colonize enough of them, sooner or later we're going to come into contact with a sentient race. And Africa, as I say, offers 51 separate, distinct, and deleterious examples of what happens when you do that. And uh, that, that certainly colored my view of the future. Oh, very interesting. Yeah, I, mean, I, I realize that sounds depressing. I do not expect to be alive for any of this, so it doesn't bother me. <laughs> it, it's wonderful literary fodder. <laughs> well, you never know. Transhumanism might not be that far off. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> I also should say on my behalf, uh, according to my bibli, I, I have a couple of bibliographers. Uh, they just came out with an 800-page tome on everything I've done. It's really rather surprising even to me, but they've come up with the uh, interesting statement that I have written and sold over 140 funny stories, which is more than Robert Sheckley or anybody else. So every once in a while, I'm not, I'm not all that grim. No, in fact, I was going to ask you about the humor in this book, and here you are giving this grim look on <laughs> in the future, but, but we'll, we'll come back to that in a few minutes, though. Um, looking at the Birthright universe, there are four sort of major eras, and uh, it's democracy. Help me out with this here. Democracy. Oh, yeah. Uh, republic, democracy, uh, oligarchy, monarchy, and finally, uh, as, as the whole thing falls apart, anarchy. 
And for those, we have a lot of, of younger folks who listen to our show. So for folks who aren't familiar with your work, what is the significance of those different eras? Well, I assume that given enough time, we're going to try almost every form of governing because none of them work all that well. Uh, if they did, uh, the concept of war would be unheard of. Hmm. So uh, the first thing they would try, and it was just a shot in the dark, and they could try anything first, but I assumed a republic. And uh, when the republic began fraying at the edges, it's not a very big jump to a democracy. And if a democracy doesn't work, it would seem to me the very next thing you would try would be an oligarchy, which is like a number of democracies kind of crammed together. And ultimately, when none of that worked, you were going to get one exceptionally powerful person, and you would have a monarchy. And when that all fell apart, when monarchies fall apart, you tend to come up, at least for a while, with anarchy. Now, that sounds like these happen lickety-split. They're spread over 18,000 years. Yeah. Right, right. So there's a lot of space in there. In fact, if you look at the timeline in the back of, uh, of the novel, you'll see that there's usually a couple hundred years separating the novels or the series of novels. So there's a yeah. ton of room in there for you to, to keep setting stories in this universe, no question. Well, there's a ton of room for, for stories. I don't know there's a ton of room for me. I'm 72. <laughs> <laughs> Still going strong, though, Mike. Still going strong. Oh, yeah. I, uh, this is what I do. I love doing it. Uh, if uh, How can I put it? Somebody uh, interviewed Pablo Picasso, the artist. And uh, it was a reporter, and he said, uh, what do you do for a hobby? And Picasso said, I paint. And the reporter said, no, 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 that's what you do for money, for a living. What do you do just to relax and enjoy yourself? And Picasso said, I paint. <laughs> Me? I write. I had six books out in 2014. I had ten out in 2012. That, that's a lot for an old guy. See, that, that's a but lot it's for what anybody. I, it's what I love to do. If you stop paying me, I... I Go on the dole and keep writing. <laughs> Don't tell the publishers that. <laughs> oh, I, I'll tell you, almost every writer I know shares my fear that someday they'd find out that if they stop paying us, we'd do it for free. And if that didn't help, we'd pay them to publish. <laughs> I mean, once you're driven to do this stuff, you're driven to do it. I love it. Okay, let's, let's talk about the Fortress and Orion a little bit. Um, luckily, Pyre sent me not one but two copies, so I was able to read it before we uh, got on the phone tonight. Huh. And, and to me, it read a little bit like sort of, uh, I would say, Ocean's Eleven meets Guardians of the Galaxy. Um, how would you describe the story and the tone of the book uh, for well, readers? Not, who having, not having seen uh, Guardians of the Galaxy, I would harken back, oh, to maybe the 1970s. Uh, there was a TV series not the Tom Cruise movie, which was quite different, Mission Impossible, in which a small group was given an incredibly hazardous job to do for their government once a week, and they played varying roles and, and, and pulled it off. Uh, they had, uh, oh, Lord, I don't even remember who, who was in it. Um, Martin, Martin Balsam, I, not Martin Balsam, huh? Barbara Bain, Martin Landau, uh, Peter Graves. Uh, uh, mo most of the modern generation will not have seen it. it it's you know, I'm sure it was done in black and white, but uh, it, it was an interesting concept. And I was talking uh, to Lou Anders about it, and somehow or other we decided that they, it would make a good science fiction series. So it 
it's plotted as a trilogy, and the first one's out. I just signed to do the second one. The third one's an outline. I'm sure I'll be doing it, too. Uh, they did do the Tom Cruise uh, movie series based on it, so so the younger readers would be familiar with that. Yeah, the, the Cruise thing, because he's Tom Cruise, uh, it made him much more important. It was really a team effort in right. the original TV thing. Yeah, good point. Yep, yep. Um, now, how we just talked about the uh, overall universe of Birthright. How does this book fit into the context of that universe? Um, it, it fits into it in, in that, uh, as I say, I'm assuming uh, there's always going to be conflict. I mean, uh, it's a big, big universe. It's got a hundred billion stars. They can't all be people that think the way we do. So, of course. You're, you're going to have uh, alien races and alien concepts and, and alien civilizations, and eventually they come into conflict with ours. And uh, when you can't solve it peaceably, uh, one side or the other decides to solve it unpeaceably, and this leads to enough conflict to write uh, books or stories about. What would you say is the most uh, unhuman alien quality that the, the humans are facing in this novel? On that novel, uh, basically there, there is a race of aliens that are inimical to us. And uh, the, the conceit of the novel is that somehow or, or another, there is one turncoat alien who has snuck out and sneaked out and, and made it to our society with some DNA of their greatest leader, their most powerful leader. And they take that DNA very quietly, a couple of years before the book even begins, and they create a clone of the leader. But although he is identical in every way, uh, we created him, and we have educated him, and he thinks like us, and he wants to end the conflict as much as we do. And the job of this small team that the book is about is to secretly infiltrate the alien society, either kill or kidnap the leader, but whichever they do, put the clone in his place so that he will make decisions that will end the war. And that's, uh, that's their mission impossible. You know, five people have to sneak through half a galaxy's worth of alien empire and and put this guy in the place of the original. The main character, I, I want to say his name correctly, is that a Pretorius? Pretorius. Uh, the reason I named him that is there was a uh, South African uh, major uh, in the Boer Wars named Pretorius, and I was like, the sound of the name. Yeah, I, I mean, I thought it was pretty cool. It, g- it gave it a... Um, <laughs> I want to say like a, a Roman gladiator type feel, just the sound of the name, you know. Um, mm-hmm. But when the novel opens, we see him, and I'm not giving anything away by saying this because it's in the first few pages, folks, so it's okay. <laughs> but we see him <laughs> uh, where he's basically everything Mike just said is explained to him, and he's just recovered from another mission where all of his team got wiped out. He's the only one who survived 
mostly intact. They're putting him back together. Um, so he's he's got this reputation. Hey, when something really serious and dangerous needs to be done, Pretorius will get it done. And so he's given this task for this mission, and he has to assemble his team. And we see him going through for about five consecutive chapters, and he's collecting his team and convincing each team member to come join. And each person comes, I, when I was reading it the first time, I was like, gosh, they all agreed pretty easily. And then later in the book, there's a conversation they have where they explain to one another why they agreed to, to come on a mission where there was a very high probability they wouldn't survive. And it got me thinking, what would motivate me to do something like that? Uh, as you know, thousands of people throughout human history have been motivated to try these type of impossible tasks where they know they're probably not going to survive. You know, as a writer... Well, we've probably got 20 teams out doing that right now in the right. Middle East. Right, exactly, exactly. So, uh, you know, what's, what sort of motivations or themes were you most interested in exploring along those lines, and how do you think you did that with the characters that are on the team doing this mission? Well, most of the characters that are on the t- team have a, a each has a different but but very special talent but in most of the cases it's a talent that does not make them very popular among their their peers or in what we would call normal society and uh to to some degree each of them uh is happy to to be free of the restrictions that that normal society puts upon them and to be able to do what they do best uh there there is a computer expert of course in the future there's bound to be and uh, is really tired of doing mundane jobs with her computer. Uh, there is a thief who is really, really good at what she does, although she has been caught and is in jail when, when she is recruited. And, you know, here she gets a chance to do what she's best at, and she's doing it for the good guys instead of breaking the law. And each has a reason uh, similar to that. Even though she does enjoy doing some thievery along the way, which is quite amusing. Yeah. Well, that's her nature. <laughs> <laughs> and everyone who's seen Guardians of the Galaxy now knows why I made that connection, because in Guardians of the Galaxy, the group is very similar. Like, none of them could exist on their own, in their own <laughs> among their own yeah, people. I, there. Yeah. I have to say, I, I, uh, I've sold a bunch of stuff to Hollywood, but you know, that doesn't mean I have to watch some of these films. <laughs> when, when, when I was a kid, when I was growing up, all we wanted was for them to come up with the equivalent of CGI so that, you, you know, anything you imagine could be put on screen. How could we know that the second they developed it, they decide, well, who needs plot or character anymore? Yeah. It's been a long, long time between good science fiction movies. Yeah, you know, you might enjoy that one. I I enjoyed it. Well, but... may, maybe I will. And once in a while, there, there's a huge hit, and I go and, and, I, and I see it to find out what the fuss was about. But like, what was the last one I saw? Um, uh, the, the the Cameron one. Uh... Avatar? Yeah, that was it, Avatar. And yeah, we're one minute into the movie. One minute. And we realize that, yeah, now we can travel faster than light and go to other planets, but we've forgotten how to make a self-propelled wheelchair. And the f- whole film was that dumb. <laughs> or take, take uh, E.T. First, if he can fly or teleport or whatever the hell he's doing in, you know, on that bicycle, why is he left behind when his ship leaves? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. He can't run to it, but he could fly to it. But more to the point, uh, just little dumb things like, there's a scene where he gets drunk in the kitchen. It's pretty funny in the beginning. Right. But then the mother comes through, 
What mother of teenage kids do you know who will walk through a kitchen strewn with empty beer cans and not notice them? <laughs> well, I mean, every film seems to be like that. Yeah. Uh, the the um, American Film Institute, every few years, makes a list of their 100 favorite films of all their critics. And just because I'm an inveterate list maker, whenever they make one, I make mine. And I have to tell you that while I have a number of fantasies quite high up, I don't have a science fiction film in my top 90. Really? Well, what is your favorite and, science fiction film? Uh, my favorite is, is, oh, from 50, 60 years ago, Forbidden Planet. Ah, which, yes. Uh, the Win- Wonders of the Krell is, is, is as good today as it was then. The rest of it's kind of silly. But uh, I, I would say they're really quite quite a few wonderful fantasies. There, There's uh, Field of Dreams, of course. The Wonderful Life Scream Suit, Ray Bradbury wrote that. It was released direct to video, so you didn't get a chance to see that in the theaters. Mm. And there's some old one, you know. How about The Wizard of Oz? Nothing wrong with that. Mm. Or some old black and whites, Portrait of Jenny, Harvey. They were all fine, but they were all fantasies. When they start trying to do science fiction, Hollywood just forgets that they're supposed to be reasonably logical. Yeah, no, logic doesn't come into it too often. I, I had high, st- high hopes for Interstellar, which is out right now. I haven't seen it yet. I think the reviews have been rather so-so from the science fiction uh, folks. I, I haven't seen it. I'm, I'm probably not going to. But uh, over on Facebook, a number of writers have given their reviews, science fiction writers, and uh, they, they are outraged at all the errors they're finding. Oh, darn. Okay, three and, hours you know, to it, sit through. To me, it's I don't mind the science. You know, if... if if um, George Lucas doesn't know what parsec means, and Gene Roddenberry thinks a ship makes a sound as it whizzes by, that's okay with me. <laughs> it's the other stuff. It's the fact that computerized guns can't hit a fleeing Solo or, or Skywalker at 20 feet that bothers me. Right, right. Well, and the, the authors of the novels, they covered for Mr. Lucas on that parsec bit, and the, Kevin J. Anderson and his... Uh, original Jedi Academy trilogy revealed that the Kessel Run, you have to go through this black hole cluster. So the closer oh. you can get to the black hole, the the fewer parsecs you're covering, and therefore it's a faster run. So he he covered him on that one. Oh yeah, I've, I've collaborated with Kevin, and I've heard that story. <laughs> <laughs> As a matter of fact, he's a publisher now. In fact, he did That's a couple right. of my collections last year. That's right. We just had him on last month. We talked a bit about a uh, Wordfire Press. Um, okay, back, back to your book, though. Back to your book. Yeah. Um, like the other books of yours I've read, I read uh, your uh, Weird West books from Pyre that came out before this one. Oh, that, that was a lot of fun. Lou Anders called me on the phone and said, I want a Weird Western. And I said, Lou, what's that? <laughs> he said, you know, look it up on Wikipedia. It'll tell you. So I looked it up, and sure enough, <laughs> Weird Western is in there, three, four pages worth. And I'll tell you, all my life I had wanted to write, not a science fiction book, but a novel, about Doc Holliday and Johnny Ringo. Uh, I grew up in an area era where, where everything was cowboys. And uh, they were the only two, historically, the only two college-educated gunslingers. And I wanted to write a story about them. And, you know, for 40 years, I waited and waited and never could find the right market for it. And then suddenly my editor asked for it. And, okay, it's science fiction. I put in a bunch of other stuff, but I got to write about the two college-educated gunslingers. Yeah, those were fun. I really enjoyed those. And there was a lot of humor and banter in those books. And just like uh, 
in Fortress and Orion. A lot of humor and banter among the characters. Well, it, it, keeps, it keeps it moving. Do you, you, we mentioned before the bleak view uh, a bit of what you think will probably happen when we go out to the stars and start colonizing, but a lot of your work, as you said earlier, is known for humor. Do, do you try to write humorously, or is that just kind of how it naturally comes out? Well, it naturally comes out that way, and every now and then, of course, I sit down and try to write a funny story. In fact, more than every now and then, a couple of times a year. Hmm. But uh, it, it doesn't... The, the fact that I... I see the ending as being ultimately bleak. Look, I see my own ending as being bleak. One day I'll be alive and one day I won't. That's bleak to me. But it doesn't mean I can't enjoy myself in the meantime. Right. Do you feel like uh, a lot of the work being released today is overly dark? Um, Do you feel like you're a voice standing out against the crowd a little bit? Oh, I'm I'm not trying to stand out against the crowd. I I think... uh, Perhaps serious rather than bleak. Uh, mm. That that there's an awful lot of humor in in daily life, and more to the point, uh, you can extend a serious scene quite a lot with an occasional humorous aside. Mm. And a lot of writers, a lot of new writers, especially, haven't learned that. And uh, the overall effect you get of 70,000, 80,000 words and not any humor at all is going to be uh, considerably darker than it might otherwise be. And if it's constantly dark, it also takes away from whatever uh, important points you're trying to make because everything seems so bleak. Mm. So I, I think humor is a very, very important tool. Tim Powers is one of my favorite writers, and you're right. Every 15 or 20 pages, you're going to get something that just makes you crack up. Among oh, yeah. what's right, you know, the most of it is a serious story. So, well, I'll tell you, I've, I've got a, a few series of books that are that are actually uh, humor, marketed as humor. Uh, what happened one night? Oh, must be 30 years ago, back when everybody knew that. Beta was the better recorder than VHS. They're all both obsolete now. Uh, Beta only had two-hour tapes, and I was trading tapes with somebody, and he had asked me to record a movie for him, uh, She, with Ursula Andress, based on the H. Ryder Haggard classic. And I looked at my Maltons guide, and I see it's like 117 minutes. So I can't just put the tape on and record it, because if I include the commercials, I'm not going to have enough for the end. So I sit down there, and dutifully, like a good trading partner, cut out the commercials. And about 20 minutes into it, my wife comes down. She thought I I was laughing so hard. She thought there was like a Marx Brothers festival I hadn't told her about. No, it was just that bad a movie. And I got to thinking, (laughs) if they could be that bad, that funny on purpose, by accident, what could I do? On purpose. So that night, I sat down and wrote down, because it was an African movie, all the African tropes that I could make fun of. Uh, you know, uh, elephant's graveyard, slave trading, Tarzan. And in, in my book, Tarzan was, was an Englishman who was hiding from his uh, creditors with a tribe of apes in, in Africa, and, and so on. And uh, I came up with a book that had 12 chapters, each about six, 7,000 words, each of them a parody of a different African uh, pulp theme or, or B-movie. I called it Adventures. And over the years, I've done three sequels, e- e- each one set on a different continent. Uh, the, uh, the Asian one had the insidious Oriental dentist and things like that. 
the uh, the French uh, the uh, the European one had the club foot of Notre Dame. They they have been my favorites of of my own books. I mean, they, they haven't sold or won awards like the others, but they're the ones I really enjoy writing. And uh, I find that uh, I I can sell just about any kind of humor I want. I just can't get rich on it, which is why I tend to write the other stuff too. <laughs> Well, I love it. It makes it fun to read. The Fortress and Orion, it's it's really, the pace of it is really driven by the dialogue and the conversations. And I was reading over the weekend, I was reading um, Ivory, uh, which I think, I think it was 1988 when that was first published. Yeah. And I noticed a lot, there's a lot more prose or narrative in that book. Can you talk a bit about how your writing style has changed over 20 or 25 years? Sure. Uh, o- over the years, I, I have found that the one thing I seem to do better than anything else is dialogue. And uh, like most lazy people, I tend to, to lean on what I do best. Uh, so I, I have a lot less action in my action thrillers than most people and, and a lot more dialogue. And uh, I, I really uh, I, I have to be a little careful about it because sometimes I really do tend to go overboard and you know, you can't have a fight scene with 27 people talking and nobody hitting. But uh, I, I find that the, it's the easiest way for me to tell a story, and it goes very, very smoothly. It makes the book read much faster yeah. for the average reader than than it would if it, were, if it had a bunch of you know half-page paragraphs. Right. I, I do want to say something about Ivory, um, which was an award winner some time back. I got the idea for that. I was um, I was reading a book on, on African hunting. I don't know why. I've never wanted to be a hunter. And I read that the greatest trophy ever taken out of Africa were these tusks of what has been called the Kilimanjaro elephant. They're huge things, like 12 feet long or so, weighed a couple of hundred pounds each, and that they were on display in the uh, British Museum. So the next time I was in Britain, I went and took a look, and I found them just wildly impressive, but what was most impressive of all was that uh, they were bought at auction in 1898 by two different people, and uh, over the next 30 years, each owner, and there were each had three or four owners, died in very mysterious or, or incredibly painful ways. None, none of them lived a normal life. And finally, the British Museum bought both of them, and... Uh, put them on display in 1935 and I thought and I told my agent wow you know I'd love to do a novel just following the tusks from the day the elephant died to the day the British Museum got them and my agent who I thought would be wildly enthused just stared at me for a while I said what's wrong and she said have you forgotten who you're writing for you're a science fiction writer follow them for the next 6,000 years so I did and as I say, I won an award. I've sold it to 17, 18 countries. Uh, I have to thank my agent for that, but that, that, that was how the genesis of Ivory. You just mentioned selling it to foreign markets, and one of the things I've noticed that you post a lot on Facebook is, you know, just sold this story to a foreign market, that story to a foreign market. So what's the process of doing that? Does your agent do all of that, or are you selling some of your... Well, it depends what I'm selling. Um, I, I must say that although I've never made as much money from any foreign sale, single foreign sales I make from America, 
when the dust clears, I have invariably made more money from the rest of the world combined mm. than I have from America. Mm. And uh, my agent is responsible for selling most of the books overseas. In fact, she does all the contracts. Every once in a while, I'll know an editor or I'll meet him and, uh, from France or Czech Republic or somewhere. We'll talk. They'll want the book, but the contract goes through her. By and large, most of the contacts are hers. But that's only for, for uh, novels. For short fiction, I handle my own. And uh, I think my record, I think I've sold one called Kiranyaga 30 times now. So wow. in, in the long run, I've had five, six stories that have actually made me as much money as a novel would. Uh, and uh, it also helps you sell your novels overseas. You start selling the short story magazines and you establish a, a readership in, I don't know, uh, Bulgaria or, or China or whatever, and suddenly the, uh, the book publishers are, are more interested in dealing with you. Hmm. And there are also more markets than just overseas. Uh, as, as the world progresses, uh, one of the major markets now is audio. Uh, I think I've sold about 50 of my books to audio. The the 800 pound gorilla these days is is Audible dot com, but there's also Blackstone Audio and Brilliance Audio and a number of others. And um, I have sold, uh, or I shouldn't say sold. That's the wrong word. I have optioned 11 or 12 things to the movies, and I've actually been paid to do three screenplays. So of course, nobody ever made movies out of them. Right. I remember we had, oh no, he wasn't on the show, but I talked to John Varley years ago when he left Hollywood and came back to writing novels, and he told me, I got tired of writing stuff that, got ne that was never made. <laughs> I want to see the fruits of my labor. I, I just got tired of dealing with these guys. Uh, I mean, you come, a producer will come up to you that you've never met before, spread his arms wide, and say, I love your work. I've read a synopsis of every book you've written. <laughs> Or you'll be sitting around at a story conference, and these guys are very good at making deals. They're not very good at making art. And you know, mm -hmm. one, one of the eight hundred thousand buck a year execs will will frown and, and and seriously say, "Well, why can't one of the twins be black?" And these are the kind of kind of minds you're dealing with. Right. It's very hard to produce art by committee. But they play with monopoly money, so when they when they call, we all come running. Right, right, absolutely. You know, one more question. I mean, the, big, the biggest check I ever got in my life as a writer was for not writing a script that I had contracted to write, but they had canceled the project. But as my lawyer pointed out, they bought my exclusive time, and if they chose not to use it, tough. They still owe us the money. I was <laughs> flabbergasted. <laughs> only in Hollywood. Hollywood and Washington. That's the only two places that would work. You, you got it. <laughs> Wow, that's awesome. Awesome for you. I don't you. think much of Washington, <laughs> but I think they're brighter than Hollywood. <laughs> One more question about the foreign markets. When you're selling your sure. short stories to foreign markets, do you sell yeah. them uh, a translated version, or do you sell them the English oh, no, version? Oh, no, no, no. Uh, they they all have their own translators. Okay, I had no As idea. As a matter of fact, one, one of the things one should do is make friends with your translator, because frequently you're dealing with an editor, I don't know, in Belgium or in, in, in Latvia, who doesn't speak much English. So the translator will come up to him and say, hey, I could do a really good job on this story. That's why you want to make friends with the translators. Okay, very cool. I, I had no idea how that worked, but very interesting. 
Um, of course, Mike, when you're not writing all the time, you're busy editing. Tell us about the Galaxy's Edge. Oh, happy to. Um, over the years, I, I have accumulated about 25 of what Hugo winner Maureen McHugh calls Mike's writer children. These are talented young beginners that uh, where, where I see the talent, I want to help them along. I will collaborate with them to get them into print. I'll buy stories from them for my anthologies. And I'll introduce them to editors and agents. And I've, I've been doing that for years. And about three years ago, uh, a fellow called Shahid Mahmood, the publisher of uh, Ark Manor, uh, came up to me and said, uh, he'd like to do a magazine. Would I like to edit it? And I said, I will only edit it if it can showcase new writers and and lesser known writers rather rather than you know all all the all the stars who write for every magazine. And uh, we put our heads together because we knew that wouldn't sell. And the format I came up with was uh, I will run six new stories an issue by newer and lesser known writers, and I will run four reprints an issue by huge names who will go on the cover and sell the magazine. Mm. And that's what we've been doing. And uh, we just uh, came out with our 11th bi-monthly issue. We've been going for two years now. Uh, this week, we came out with a book called The Best of Galaxy's Edge. Mm -hmm. And uh, we, we've got a couple of stories by, by established writers who just happen to have something when I had a hold of Phil, uh, Mercedes Lackey and Larry Niven. But almost all the stories in that book are by new writers who you're going to be hearing from for the next 20 and, and 30 years. And I'm, I'm incredibly proud of them. They, they really came through for this magazine. Uh, most new magazines, you know, last a couple of months and die. Uh, this one's doing better now than when we started, and we're going to be around for a while. That's fantastic. You know, I was looking at it online. If I remember correctly, there's no submissions allowed, right? So how do you go about finding your stories? Uh... I, in, I invite any any uh, new writer I've heard anything good about. It's gotcha. by invitation only, but it's not hard to get invited. All you have to do is say, can I submit a story to you? And I'll say, yeah, you're invited. Oh, your Facebook wall is about to get hammered. <laughs> uh, well, I hope not my Facebook wall. But uh, <laughs> we, we get in about 20 stories a month, which takes an inordinate amount of time, given that I'm only going to buy, well, three a month, six every, every issue. But uh, some of them that, that have been nice stories, but just not, not quite to my taste, I have directed to other editors who have then gone out and bought them. So, mm -hmm. and, and it's a hard, hard field to break into. And anything you can do to help, most of, most of the established writers feel the same way. Uh, the way I put it is, I can't pay back because everybody who helped me is rich or dead or both. Hmm. So I pay forward, and that's the way most of them feel. In fact, let me tell you about another line we're doing. Uh, it's called the Stellar Guild, and it's a line of books. And when I walked up to each of the established stars we got, they said, no, they don't want to do it until I explain the details. And what we want is we want a novella from a superstar, and another novella, a prequel or a sequel, or at least set in the same universe, by the super by a, a protege chosen not by me but by the superstar. Oh wow! And the second they heard that 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 a a protege that that they chose 
would share cover credit with him. You know, when you share cover credit with Kevin Anderson or with Larry Niven or Bob Silverberg, that does a lot more for your career than selling a couple of short stories. Right. And uh, we, we've gotten our, our first seven books are out now. They're by Kevin Anderson and his protege, and that one won an award, in fact. Mercedes Lackey, Nancy Kress, Harry Turtledove, Robert Silverberg, Eric Flint, Larry Niven. Uh, I'll be doing the next one. And uh, it's a wonderful way to, to get the, these protégés noticed real, real quick. I mean, you're going to sell a lot more copies when when you're half of a book with uh, Harry Turtledove than when, when you're all by yourself. That is a very cool idea. Who, who's the publisher for those? Uh, same fellow, Shahid Mahmood. Okay. Uh, Ark Manor and Galaxy's Edge are both his companies. He's a Pakistani who came here to Columbia University and never went back home. And he was a bomb trader for the city of San Diego for about 20 years. And they decided, you know, if he, if he didn't quit then and become a publisher, he never would. And he always wanted to be involved in science fiction. So uh, he had been doing it for about a year or two. I ran into it. And a matter of fact, the way I did it, uh, I wrote an introduction for a classic book by a Dan Galui, I don't know how many of your readers, uh, listeners have heard of him, and uh, we he liked it, and we got to talking, and suddenly I'm editing Stellar Guild and Galaxy's Edge. Well, on behalf of everyone who uh, hopes to break in, thank you for taking so much of your time to do stuff like that. It really huh. does mean a lot uh, it, to us. It, it, as I say, you can't play, pay back, and this field has been wonderful to me for half a century, so I've got to pay forward. Well, Mike, we're coming up against the clock here. I feel like we could do two or three more interviews like this. <laughs> There's so much to talk about with you. But is there anything else you really wanted to make sure that we did talk about uh, tonight for this interview? No, I'm, I'm entirely at your disposal. Well, thank you very much. Now, oh, by the way, when does book two come out of the Dead Enders uh, series? Well, it doesn't come out till I write it. I just signed the contract this oh, week. Okay. Uh, theoretically, it'll come out next December. I've, I've had a book every December for Pyre since they started, so I would assume next December. Okay, great. And folks, Mike's website is MikeResnick.com. We'll have a link in the show notes, of course. You can find him on Facebook. He posts uh, pretty faithfully there, always something to say. And uh, he's a good follow, so make sure you do that as well. And Mike, uh, best of luck with the new book. Thank you so much for coming on the show and talking with us. Really oh, it's appreciate been my it. pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. Bane Audio Drama from Bane Books. The heart of science fiction and fantasy. Bane Audio Drama presents Eric Flint's Islands. Based on the novella by Eric Flint. Set in the world of the Belisarius series by Eric Flint and David Drake. Mortala Kotu Medalo! Babachida Mimhai! Incoming! Get down! Get down! Get behind the wall! You heard the captain! Behind the ramparts, you lazy dogs! Don't have to tell me twice, Sarge. Flowers are having us for lunch! The young captain will see us through. Run! Run, you dogs! Run for your lives! You get down too, sir! I will look! <laughs> sir, are you alright? Captain Serenites! Sir! It hurts! Sir, are you hit? That was close, sir. If you hadn't have given the order, that mortar would have cut us all to pieces. Sir? 
Sir, let me turn you over. Uh, is it... What happened? Am Holy I... Mary, mother of God. Is it... It can't be night already, can it? Saints, protect us. What is it, Luke? What are you talking about? Oh, sir. Speak, man. Your eyes, sir. Your face. It's bad. What are you talking about? Strike a light. Strike a light, I tell you. Strike a light. Strike a light. My name is Luke of Elephonesis. I am aide-de-camp to Captain Calipodius Serenites of the Roman legions now fighting in India. Yes, that Calipodius, Calipodius the Blind. It is almost impossible to believe what a year can do. It can make a boy into a man, a, a girl into a woman. For you see... Before Calipodius became a great and revered captain who led his men bravely in battle, and then Calipodius the Blind, whom you undoubtedly know, he was simply a 17-year-old boy about to enter into an arranged marriage, an arranged marriage that the young woman involved most decidedly did not want to take place. It's not fair. I know, child, but life so seldom is. Why can't they understand? I don't want him. You hardly know him, child. All right, I'll say it. I don't want it. The moment I become his wife, my life ends. Heaven forfend. Don't speak in such a way, Anna. I want to be left alone. I want to find my own path. I am 17 years old. I've hardly lived. True enough. And I want books. Books and stories and science and philosophy for the rest of my life. I do not wish to become an ornament. Nobody expects you to like it, dear. Then why? Why must I be sold into a life of utter misery, utter boredom? Look around, Anna Melissini. What do you see? Books I haven't read. Books I will never read now. Oh, Sister Catherine... A life I will never lead. Listen to me, child. All of this, all of these books, the tapestries, your precious library, this convent and the school grounds along with it, all of this must be paid for. All of this costs money, a great deal of money. Money is a vulgar topic, Sister Catherine. I don't care a whit for it. Spoken like a sheltered little rich layabout. Do not speak to your betters that way, nun. I'm sorry, Sister Catherine. Besides, I'm not that little. Think, child. Where does money come from? Where does true wealth reside? In the heart? In the alliance of families, Anna. The Melissini with the Serenites. You have an ancient lineage. The Serenites are one generation removed from the street. They have grown very rich, adapting the new machines and methods brought by the aid crystal. You, Melissini, are now as poor as church mice. Don't you think I know that, Sister Catherine? No, you would be quite rich for church mice. Or commoners. But poor. Among the aristocracy of Constantinople, yes. You know we are facing bankruptcy. And thus so is this convent. Your family supports the cloister. They have bought the books in this library. I am not a fool, Sister Catherine. 
I understand this. Then you know that with the wealth this alliance with the Serenites will bring to the Melusini family, you can build a dozen such libraries. And hardly set foot in one of them. It isn't as bad as all that, child. I should at least marry for love. Then there is a man you desire to be with? No, certainly not. Perhaps you can learn to desire, if not to love. And I have heard that Master Calipodius is handsome enough. <gasps> Sister Catherine! No one does hear rumors, even locked up in here. <gasps> you surprise me. Well, I may be a nun, but I'm also a woman. I wish I could stay locked up here with these books forever. The steam engine. The telegraph. The times are changing as they haven't for a thousand years. Not fast enough for me, Sister Catherine. Not fast enough. Visit Adventures in Sci-Fi Publishing for show notes, links, reviews, special guests, videos, and more. Email us at adventuresinsci-fi-publishing at gmail.com. Sound effects from the Free Sounds Project. Music by Asymmetry, found at musically.com. No authors were seriously damaged in the making of this podcast. <laughs>